from the Media Factory in the south end of Burlington, Vermont. This is 99.3 FM, WBTVLP, Burlington, streaming online at 99.3 WBTV.org. This is Write the Book, the show for writers and curious readers. I'm Shayla Connor Shapiro. Today on Write the Book, you'll hear a conversation with Jonah Lair about his new book, Mystery, A Seduction, A Strategy, A Solution, published in August by Avid Reader Press. Jonah Lair is a writer, journalist, and the author of A Book About Love, How We Decide, and Proust Was a Neuroscientist. He graduated from Columbia University and studied at Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar. He's written for The New Yorker, Nature, Wired, The New York Times Magazine, The Washington Post, and The Wall Street Journal. He lives in Los Angeles. His new book, Mystery, blends psychology, neuroscience, and anthropology to shine a new light on everything from the formulas of our favorite detective shows to the tricks of successful advertising campaigns and the calculated risks of the stock market. He also examines the indelible role of mystery in our culture, revealing how the magical world of Harry Potter triggers the magic of dopamine in our brains, why the baseball season is 10 times longer than the football season, and when the suspect is introduced, in each episode of Law and Order. When I spoke to Jonah Lair, I asked if he wanted to write about mysteries for the same reason that we love them. Our interview begins there. I hope you enjoy our conversation. The book was actually inspired. The particular moment of inspiration was watching my then two-and-a-half-year-old son watch YouTube Kids in the kitchen. Um, he was there watching on his iPad, you know, the usual iPad babysitting, not not a moment I'm particularly proud of. <laughs> and I noticed that that he was watching this YouTube channel called Ryan's Toy Review. And he was mesmerized in particular to watch the video over and over again. Again, not a parenting moment I'm proud of. It was a very particular video of a boy named Ryan, four or five years old at the time. His parents wake him up in bed and they give him what looks like a giant paper mache egg. He punches a hole in the egg and then he starts taking out toys, Hot Wheels, Disney cars, Disney characters, random trains, stuff like that. Nothing too exciting. These are toys he had already owned, but it was something thrilling about watching him remove these toys from an egg. That that something about that narrative device, putting them inside an egg, made it a mystery made it this tantalizing uncertainty, like a toddler slot machine. And my son would just watch this video over and over, and I became very interested in it. Then I began to notice that one of the dominant tropes of YouTube, this is now several months later, had become these surprise eggs. And sure enough, that Ryan's toy review in particular, that one seven-minute long clip has been seen nearly one and a half billion times. That's crazy. and if you look on YouTube, it's dominated by these surprise egg tropes. So they are everywhere. And I became very interested in what is it that's so mesmerizing about these surprise eggs? Why are they so appealing to kids? And then I started to realize that surprise eggs are really just a version of what screenwriters in Hollywood call the mystery box, which is a well-known technique for hiding some information. So J.J. Abrams, um, the well-known writer and producer, he's dissected Star Wars in terms of mystery boxes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you you open up and it's, who is R2-D2? Who is Obi-Wan? What is the force? Why are they on this planet? The narrative, the story really lurches from one mystery to the next. And that's why we keep watching. So that was really my entry point into the subject, the psychology and the aesthetics of mystery, why we're drawn to the unknown. It really began with 
this YouTube kids video that my then toddler son just just was hooked on. Okay, great. And and you've you've jumped to a question I had, which and you've already sort of talked about the mystery box a little bit, but I thought that was really interesting. Um, the idea that you generate interest by hiding something crucial, you know, and um, that's another question I ask my guests guests pretty frequently is like, what do we love about secrets? Um, so c- can we talk a little bit more about the mystery box and what like you learned in your research about why we so love secrets and the things that are hidden from us, almost sort of purposefully hidden seems to generate more interest. So the mystery box is one of the most basic techniques for creating mystery. It's used by writers, screenwriters, artists, and it's essentially hiding information. Um, One of the stories I tell in the book is when Steve Jobs first unveiled the iPhone, he introduced its features, talked about how it's really three devices in one. It's an iPod, it's a phone, and it's a web browser. Mm -hmm. And then then he gently pats his pocket and just takes out the device an inch, maybe two inches, and then he puts it back in his pocket. And he keeps talking about the features. And I think that that to me is like the quintessential showman using a mystery box. He understood that what was going to keep people mesmerized, what was going to keep people listening to him talk about the features of a gadget for their 10 minutes was not showing them the iPhone, that, that he was going to put it back in its mystery box. And, and that's the same technique, as I said, used by George Lucas. Right. And in terms of the, the psychology of it, why we're drawn to secrets, why we're drawn to these narrative tropes and tricks, it really gets back to something fundamental about the human brain, in particular, the way the child, the childish brain is wired. So when you show kids ex- things, various faces, various videos, they are drawn to the unfamiliar. This is true even two, three weeks old, they will stare the longest at something they haven't seen before. They will stare the longest at a video that violates the laws of physics. So already they're kind of drawn to magic tricks, drawn to the completely unfamiliar. And and we can begin to understand why this is by looking at the circuitry of the brain. Um, I talk in the book about something called the prediction error signal, which is the brain is a pattern making machine. It's always trying to figure out what's gonna happen next, if X, then Y. And and once we understand a pattern, once we know how the story is going to go, it becomes boring very quickly. And that's because there's no use paying attention to it if we already know what's going to happen, right? The brain is always trying to conserve energy. And so what we're most interested in, what we're most drawn to are not the patterns we expect, but the patterns we don't, those violated patterns, what neuroscientists call prediction errors. Those actually generate the biggest hit of dopamine, so to speak, that keeps us riveted. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that's it's often associated with pleasure, but it's really used to regulate our attention to tell us to look here, look there, watch this. And, and it's most responsive to unexpected patterns, to plot twists we never saw coming, to phones that are still in someone's pocket, right. um, to toys in a paper mache egg. Yeah. And um, I I really loved the fact that you delved into the psychology, but you also have lots and lots of anecdotes that sort of um, explain better than just, you know, kind of scientific um, language in a way that everybody's going to understand how these concepts work. Um, so, for example, you you spend some time on magic tricks, and you talk a lot about specific magic tricks. And in the case of the mystery box, you tell an anecdote very early on about Agatha Christie um, and how she, we think, probably very purposefully used this method to get some buzz around herself <laughs> before she became a hit. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? 
Sure. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a big, big Agatha Christie fan, and I was very interested in kind of how she became so famous. Uh, she'd already written, this is when she was a young writer. She was stuck in a miserable marriage. Um, her husband was not very nice to her, was having a very open affair. She was struggling with depression, struggling with her next book. This would be her third book. She'd already written two really wonderful detective stories. Um, and then one night she essentially to the, I mean, this thing, the current consensus among historians and academics staged a disappearance. I think it was tangled up. I think it's a complicated thing. I think she was having a nervous breakdown as well, but she went off to a spa, to a health spa, but staged her disappearance in a way that people would think it was a murder, that something had gone wrong. She drove her car to the edge of a cliff, didn't put it in park, walked away, uh, left her purse and important belongings behind, left the car door open, um, left no note. So it was this complete and utter mystery. And it became this huge cause celeb on both sides of the Atlantic. So all the British papers, all the American papers were writing about where this attractive young writer had gone. Um, you know, our culture still has these moments where we become fixated on the disappearance of a young woman. And this was the case in the 1930s. Um, she had just vanished. Um, and so she was gone for about two weeks. And when she came back, when they found her in the spa, uh, she she was famous. She was a celebrity. And and I think that's that in addition to her monumental talent for writing these mystery boxes, for writing these detective stories and really pushing the form, I think is part of why she became so famous. Yeah. Um, so, so I tell in the book as an example of how she, you know, she put it, it's, it's not the catch people are interested in, it's the chase. It's the chase that really motivates readers. And I think that was one of her core principles, her essential strategies. And I think that was a tactic she used, not just in her prose, but also in her publicity. Although I will say, as you described the incident, I was really taken with the fact that she, when she um, made it look like her car had been run off the road, she, the, 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 the front wheels actually were over the edge of this sort of big drop-off ravine, <laughs> cliff, whatever. I'm like... Wow. <laughs> yeah, it, it must have been quite the scene. I mean, can you imagine as a police officer stumbling on that? And then, of course, her husband was the obvious suspect because he was having this open affair. He was at his mistress's house that night. Um, you know, it was people knew the maid had heard them have a, you know, nasty fight that evening. So I think you know, it, it was pretty obvious that he would be suspect number one, um, which may have been part of the plan as well. But uh, no, she she's she staged it like a brilliant crime writer. She knew what she was doing. Right. Now, speaking of brilliant crime writers, um, I did not know that Edgar Allan Poe was the one who actually came up with what we still sort of use as the formula for the detective mystery. Um, and as you write, um, first there is the impossible crime followed by the baffled cops. The case appears to be hopeless, but then our brilliant detective appears. He ponders some neglected clues, connects the far-fetched dots, and comes up with the inspired solution. Um, and I thought that was really interesting that that was Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, yeah. And so, and that's that's I'm trying to think of what his dates are, but he predates Agatha, doesn't he? Yeah, by about half a century, by, by 50 more than years half a century. So, yeah. so this is the middle of the 19th century where he is desperate for cash uh, and and invents this formula that right. it really is his first big payday as a writer. Uh, and it's still, you know, a measly payday, but lets him pay off some of his debts. Right. And so um, 
so she would have probably fo- followed pretty much that same formula, right? I mean, Poirot is yeah. really fascinating, and he's a unique and interesting character. But the formula is kind of there in her work too, right? Yeah, and Conan Doyle was there before. As I mean, Conan Doyle preceded her as well, and I think he refined Poe's formula. But as Conan Doyle himself said, uh, Poe was there first. Yeah, um, you know, he he invented the Sherlock character. Um, and, you know, it's a formula we very much take for granted now because it's everywhere because, you know, it's all those impossible crime thrillers, all those detective thrillers, it's law and order on television. It's TV is dominated by procedurals, which still very much adhere to this formula. I mean, it's even a show like house MD. Um, It's just there. It's not a crime. It's a medical mystery. Right. Um, But it's still this notion of, something impossible happens, the conventional experts are baffled, something has gone wrong, and and then our brilliant deductive detective comes and saves the day. Um, and, I, you know, it it is a very comforting form. I mean, it's it still strikes me as a little strange when people talk about watching Law & Order as their relaxation time in the evening because it <laughs> often involves, you know, grisly, violent crimes. But I think there is something very comforting about that formula. It's, it is like a mystery box where we know for 41 minutes, we're going to be surprised and baffled if the show works, right? Like we're watching it because we don't know. And then in the 42nd minute, we'll get closure. Um, and I think that's kind of the promise of these detective stories as well, that they're going to take us on this wild ride, give us lots of prediction errors, lots of twists and suspects we never saw coming, but then they're going to solve the crime and there will be closure. The good guys will be punished. It's, it's funny though, because in a way um, it, it, it contradicts itself that we love that formula because it's not the unexpected. It's not the twist. The formula itself is really reliable. It's the specifics of each show or each book or each play or whatever we're talking about that is the unexpected. Um, so it's funny that we still love that formula so much and that we aren't looking for yeah. something new there. <laughs> no, no. And even though it's become a cliche, and I think the best ones, and this is true of Agatha and her time, it's true of Conan Doyle. I think it's true of the best Law and Order episodes. They find a way to make the formula not feel formulaic. Right. But I think this does speak to the the larger balance that all creators and artists have to find, which is what's the right dose of difficulty here? Like yeah. if it's a complete mystery, if we're just baffled, it's no fun, right? If there are no patterns we can hold on to at all, then it's just confusing. It's frustrating. We're going to look away. So it's giving us just enough pattern to pay attention to, but then breaking it, violating it, subverting our expectations. Mm -hmm. That's really what we're after. Um, So Star Wars, for instance, borrows lots of cliches and tropes from every narrative out there. So parts of it feel very, very familiar. And yet it's in this entirely new universe that's full of forces and Jedi and strange names and planets we don't understand at all. Um, So, so, you know, that, that I think when you're dealing with mystery as an artist, as a writer, it really is about finding the right dosage. Yeah. It's funny. You, um, you, mention in the book, I'm not remembering which chapter you talk about him, but I've always been interested in Viktor Shklovsky and his theories on defamiliarization, and you you write about that. But one of the things he said, I'm not sure if you mentioned this in your book, but he, he, and I'm not going to remember exactly what he said, but he kind of talked about how people like a refrain. We sort of like what we are familiar with. Um, And so the the defamiliarization thing um, is is interesting. But but, um, I'm thinking about how we like this form 
formula. It's like, it's what we're familiar with. So that is comforting, right? Um, yeah. I mean, I, and I think what I love about defamiliarization as a concept is it presupposes that there is familiarization. Right. It, it presupposes we are aware of what you are deconstructing in front of us. Um, and I think, you know, that's poetry works not because it's, you know, completely disfluent. It's completely strange. It works because it takes what we know and makes it strange. Um, but there is that familiarization that is required. Right. Um, and I think that's that's true of mystery in general. You know, no one wants to read a detective story in which nothing makes sense, uh, in which everything is completely new. It's it, it, it takes this formula, which is comforting and familiar. And then within that formula gives us surprise after surprise. Right. Um, you know, one other way I talk about finding this balance in the book is in terms of sports. I think the rules of sports and, and I highlight baseball in particular, they're always trying to find the balance between on the one hand, rewarding talent, making sure the best team wins. But if the best team always wins, that's really boring. Then it's very predictable. So the rules of sports are in many ways designed to constrain talent, to move the pitcher's mound a little farther back so pitchers can't dominate hitters, to change the rules so they have to use wooden bats, so so you know batters can't hit so many home runs. So they're always changing the rules to find that optimal balance between, on the one hand, rewarding talent, and on the other hand, making sure there's enough randomness and chance and uncertainty so the less talented team can win some of the time. Right, right. And you talk about the, the lottery... Um for where players play um, as part of that. Yeah. Is that yeah. is, what do they call uh, it? That's in a chapter about kind of the mystery of people and the mystery of characters and um, how I think some of the best art, and here I talk about Hamlet in particular, um, you know, but this is true of Tony Soprano, the, the best novels find a way to invent characters who remain mysterious, who contain the unknown. And I think that captures something it makes them more interesting, but it also captures something very, very fundamental by human nature, um, which is that we are we are mysterious beings. And one way to illustrate that is by looking at the NFL draft, which um, right. so the pro football draft. Uh, long story short, teams are very bad at identifying the players who will actually perform the best yeah. in professional <laughs> football. That's true. Um, um... Let, let, before we um, move on, there was one other thing I was getting. Well, actually, I don't know if, if this was in the s um, section with Shklovsky, but you talk about Margaret Brown and Goodnight Moon. And I thought that was really interesting because, of course, when we think about a mystery, we're thinking about detective stories. We're thinking about hard-boiled detectives and or even, you know, the, the more contemporary, you know, like Tana French. But um, can you just talk a little bit about Goodnight Moon and why that... Um, uh, sort of skews what we're expecting as we read along. Yeah. So this gets back to patterns and breaking patterns and, and that being what's interesting. I mean, what I love about Goodnight Moon, having read it, I don't know, 20,000 times. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that may be a lowball estimate. Uh, two of my children were particularly obsessed with it. And it's, it is, I mean, all her work is brilliant and interesting. But what I love about it is on the one end, she sets up what you think is going to be the most predictable pattern there is like the ultimate cliche, like say hi to the teddy bear, say good night to the teddy bear, say hi to the moon, say good night to the moon. I mean, that, that would be the predictable cadence 
of a children's book, right? Identify an object, name it, and then say goodnight because I'm reading this to you so you can fall asleep. Um, But what I love about Weiss Brown is the way she violates that almost from the very first page. She sets up this expectation and then subverts it. So all of a sudden you're saying goodnight to things you never said hello to. You're saying goodnight to noises everywhere. You're saying goodnight to... you know, to, to all sorts of strange things. Uh, and in many ways, waking the child up. I mean, that's what I love about it so much is like the child is all of a sudden aware of all these strange noises everywhere. They weren't in the, you know, the first half of the book, but now you're saying, get into them. And what are all those spook- spooky noises? So it's a book that doesn't help your child go to sleep, but it's just, it's so brilliant the way she takes this, this obvious pattern and completely dismantles it. And I think in a very, you know, in a very funny way, she's introducing a one-year-old or a two-year-old to the avant-garde. She herself was very inspired by Gertrude Stein, Mm -hmm. loved Gertrude Stein's games with language, loved the way she was always trying to take, you know, take her art, take the cliches of her form to the next level. And I think that's what, what, what Wise Brown was trying to do too, just with a very specific format. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Um, now you let us in on the secrets of some famous magic tricks. That was kind of fun, mm-hmm. but um, but you also clarify that we don't necessarily want to know how the magic tricks work. Um, that people in a study who were offered the opportunity to watch a magic trick and then find out how it was done, or watch a magic trick and then watch a different magic trick, they chose the latter, and that was really interesting to me. Yeah, and to be honest, that was something I really struggled with as the writer of this book. Um, I wrote that chapter so many times and the first several versions, I, I tried to live out that study and, um, and to be like, okay, so people maybe they don't want to know how, uh, in the book, I talk about a geological statistician who one of his hobbies is reverse engineering the most difficult magic tricks in the world. So the tricks that many magicians don't even know how to solve. And he became fascinated by this one trick in particular, which when you first see it seems uncannily simple. It's just about puzzle pieces and making Mm -hmm. puzzle pieces disappear, essentially. And his magician friends didn't know how it was done. No one could replicate it. It was one of a kind. And he spent a long, long time trying to reverse engineer it and eventually came up with what I think we're all pretty sure is the solution. And because that study, I kept trying to write that chapter and say, look, people don't want to know how the magic trick is solved because it's inevitably disappointing, right? It all comes back to there's a mirror, there are some invisible wires, his fingers move really fast, he distracted you. There's a, you know, a very short list of techniques and magicians use to actually violate the laws of physics. Right. Um, but but I so so I kept writing the chapter and it just wasn't satisfying. You know, people in the end, I think there's something about having it described and built up over a chapter that made people just want to know how it was done. What did Bohan, he's a geological statistician. So so in the end, I had to write the chapter in a way that I think contradicts that study. But it was my own, you know, my own panel of market research. Just people said this chapter is not working if you don't tell me how the hell he did this puzzle trick. Um, but I think in general, sorry, that was a long-winded digression. I think no, in general, that study holds true that um, that that people, you, you go to magic for the wonder and the awe, uh, which is something the book talks about as well. Um, that's, I think it's a very, it's a very powerful human emotion that we often neglect and fail to get in our daily lives. 
Um, but I think it's something when we experience it, whether it's in a religious setting or a magic trick or because we read a poem or went to the museum or went to Yosemite, is something we 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 really appreciate and seek out again. Yeah. So I, I, I would say that what you're talking about, though, is kind of two different things, because in writing the chapter, you're kind of Steve Jobs showing the little bit of the phone. Yeah. And that's like, that's the whole point of the chapter yeah. in a way, or it becomes that, right? Whereas what he was doing was just like a, a series of magic tricks. And, and, you know, it wasn't the whole, the whole point wasn't a single magic trick. So in a way, I see that the, they can, they can coexist, those two studies, yeah, <laughs> the one you no, did and the one he did. <laughs> it's a very kind interpretation. Thank you. Um, you. You know, the way I rationalized it was I, I kind of set you up to seek out explanation here. So I'm, I'm not priming you to, I think a great magician primes you for all. Right. You, you, you pay your $25 for the ticket, you sit down in the dark room and you want to experience wonder. That's what you're there for. This chapter, I, I'm kind of setting you up because the character, this geological statistician, Mohan Srivastava, because he's this great explainer, because this is his hobby, you know, I prime you to want to know how the hell this magic trick was done. Um, because, I mean, that's that's part of magic, too. It's not a whodunit. It's a how the hell did he do it? Yeah, I like um, that line. That was a good line. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that is, I think, that's how I rationalize it anyway, as a writer. Um, just just why I'm giving you the answer, even though I just told you you'd like it more if I didn't. <laughs> um all right, I have another question that has to do with um, a couple of things that I felt kind of came up against each other in the book. Um, I'm not going to sort of give away your conclusions at the very end. You have a lovely closing uh, part about writing and about um, uh, the blank page. Um, but let's talk a little bit about, um, uh, well, I mean, I know that, that, that sometimes people outline and sometimes people like to just kind of like let it flow and let the... Let the um, plot or narrative or, or words come to them as they go, right? And you have another um, story, an anecdote about law and order and how they usually figure out the end first, the who did it part, and then they work backwards looking for the plot that will lead to that ending. So that to me was interesting because it's it's kind of the opposite of starting with uh, an idea. Uh, well, maybe not. What do you think of that? Um, I mean, I had the pleasure of uh, spending time in their writer's room and meeting their writers mm -hmm. who, who, I mean, they're all these brilliant, brilliant men and women who can just find mystery everywhere. And I think their format is very, very specific and very unique. So it's kind of hard to generalize from. I mean, when you think about their formula, isn't just pose, you know, the brilliant detective who solves the impossible crime. I mean, it's that too. They have the brilliant detectives, they have the impossible crime, but they also have these commercial breaks. So they have to structure it around these acts that need cliffhangers. So, so you come back after the commercial. Um, so that's like this another layer on top. And then beyond that, they've got a very specific time constraint. They can't write a 300 page novel because they feel like it or write a a 7,000 word short story because the plot demands it, it has to fit into 42 minutes exactly. Right. Um, so I think given those constraints, they have to be very specific about where these surprises are going to happen, where the mysteries are going to happen, and then how they're going to solve the crime. So they, so they, so they often, and this isn't always the case, but they usually begin with the solution with the shocking twist and then work backwards, lay in the track as they put it. So it feels believable. 
That said, um, the specific Law and Order episode, the Law and Order SVU episode I highlight in the book, does not follow that template. And I think is one of those episodes I was drawn to because it's a formula that hides the formula. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're not aware as you're watching it of all the different beats and structures that are kind of undergirding this story. It just feels like one surprise after another. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, now, you said um, in the book, there's a couple things that you that you um, expand upon to let us know how these things affect us in our lives. One is that children who are drawn to mystery also happen to be the children who do better in school. And I found that very interesting. And then another one, and you just said something a little while ago that made me think of this too, um, is that people who were drawn to some of these... Um, I can't remember if you're talking about mysteries or games. It might have been the more violent games. Did better during COVID because they were used to, um, I, I guess, used to being a little bit worried. I don't know. Yeah, used to dystopias. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. yeah. I mean, I think this is both speak to, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book as well was to really explain why we need great art. I think in this this age of, you know, scrolling personalized news feeds and technology that's always trying to take our attention, like why why is it still worth engaging with Hamlet and To the Lighthouse and difficult poetry and abstract art and Agatha Christie? Like, mm-hmm. like what is it about these works that makes them last and makes them so essential for the human condition? I think part of it is the way they, you know, they're a dress rehearsal for life. They teach us how to deal with the unknown, teach us how to deal with uncertainty. I think, I mean, one for me, at least, one of the great lessons of COVID was learning how to deal with uncertainty, constantly changing condi- you know, conditions and recommendations, making decisions under uncertainty, knowing nothing is perfectly safe, but you have to make these trade-offs. And I think art in many ways teaches us how to love mystery, how to think about uncertainty, how to deal with uncertainty. So not to get too prescriptive, there are a million reasons why we should read Hamlet into the lighthouse. But I think that's one of the things it teaches us, which is to find pleasure and joy in the questions and not just the answers. And I think um, that is, you know, I think one property that, that, that the great canonical works all share, which is they're not about giving us answers. They're giving a, they're by giving us these infinite lists of questions. Um, I adopt the framework of the theologian James Carse, who talks about finite games, which are games like baseball or football or Monopoly. Then there are infinite games, which he argues are things like the Old Testament, like Hamlet, these, these great texts where the point of the game is not to win. You never solve it, but it's to play. You play to play. You play to keep playing. And I think that's what the great that's what great art does is it, it gives us this infinite list of questions. Right. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that to, sorry, that was a, again, another long-winded digression, but I think that does speak to that specific study about horror movies um, and the horror genre I talked about. I think it, it, it is a kind of dress rehearsal. It is a kind of training for how to cope with very difficult situations, how to cope with whether it's zombies or a respiratory pandemic. It's like bad stuff happens. And here's how I've learned to control my emotions in the movie theater. And I can take some of those lessons and apply them to daily life. Um, the, the study about young children and curiosity is a study I've long been fascinated by. And what it finds is that not unsurprisingly, kids from higher socioeconomic households, so households with more money, 
tend to score higher on measures of curiosity. Many reasons for this, like, like all these correlational studies, it's very complicated. But one of the leading theories is that because it's easier if you have money to encourage curiosity in children to say, you know, you're interested in science, let's let's become members at the Natural History Museum. You're interested in this. Let's go on Amazon and see what we can find, what books might speak to this. Um, so it is a kind of luxury, uh, you know, and skill you can teach your children. Now, what's the, the, the specific correlation I was most interested in that study is that if you look at kids from lower socioeconomic households who score as well, who perform as well in school and tests as kids from higher socioeconomic households. So this is a longstanding income gap in education performance. These are the kids who cross the gap, who break the correlation. One of the things that really sticks out about these children is their scores on curiosity, that they often score higher on tests and measures of curiosity than kids from higher socioeconomic households. So despite their disadvantages, what you know, one, one quality that these children really have is their curiosity. So I think that's that's led many researchers to become interested in the notion that one way to help minimize the income gap in educational performance is to really encourage curiosity at all income levels. So how can schools do that? How can you know how can we make sure that curiosity isn't just a privilege for the wealthy or those who can afford it, but is really something that all kids can learn to cultivate. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um, so this, uh, I'm going to ask you a kind of s- seemingly trivial question, but it's got to do with the way you wrote the book. And I, I was interested to know, as you wrote, you always described the physical look of your interviewees, like people that you met in person. So as if they were characters in a book, um, and, and they are, I guess, um, so I'm not sure everybody does this in nonfiction, but you did. So here's an example. Mohan has graying hair, a neatly trimmed beard, and the disinteresting wardrobe of an academic. So that was interesting. Why did you choose to describe them? Oh, that's such an interesting question. Um, I mean, uh, <laughs> it's not a very satisfying answer if I just say it's a writerly tick. Um, <laughs> I mean, for, for me, it was just you know, it was, a, it was a way of bringing them to life a little bit. Okay. Um, I mean, I mean, one a book I'm reading now, it, and it's, it is all about the mystery. It's Leanne Moriarty's new novel, um, Apples Never Fall, I think it's called. I'm reading on the Kindle. So it's, it's very kind of dematerialized in my mind, but um, she reading that book, she is such a master of concise character description Yeah. Um, where she chooses these incredibly telling details where, I mean, the book reads like it's already been adapted for an HBO miniseries. It's, I'm and she's sure gotten it's, very good at that. <laughs> I'm sure it's in the works. And you can visualize these characters instantly. Um, and, you know, every new character, I, you, she's got these perfect two sentences that describe them. And it made me think about my own character descriptions in this book, feeling, you know, I felt terrible about them. Um, I felt like they were a missed opportunity having just read or in the midst of reading Leanne Moriarty's new book. Um, but, but, you know, I think I'm trying to do, I'm trying to get at the same thing she's trying to get at, which is given the, you know, given the lack of space, given that Mohan Srivastava is going to be a character in this book for 15, 20 pages at best, how can I make him come alive on the page? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think just telling you that he wears the sweaters of a tenured academic um, maybe that pops. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of why I'm trying to do it, but, yeah, but it's no, a question I, I should think more about. 
No, I, I thought it was interesting. And I, I'm not actually saying that I didn't think it was a good idea. I just, um, I'm not sure I see it all the time in um, in nonfiction where there are interviews. And then it made me think, yeah, but you know, it does. It kind of like, it it, it makes it less academic, a little bit more um, interesting. And yeah, no, I, 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 that, that's great. Um, I'm curious, coming off of this project, do you feel like you want to write a mystery? Or do you, did you start coming up with mysteries as you were, as you were going? <laughs> You know, I've been asked that question a few times, and I think, sadly, I've had the exact the exact opposite reaction. I think having read all these great mystery novels, detective stories, um, there's something when you really sit with them and try to deconstruct them, you know, it is a kind of awe. Like even being in the writing room of Law & Order SVU, like to watch how good these guys are at inventing these stories made me realize I'm never going to be that good. Um, so I think there was something in the end humbling about it. And, and it wasn't just the mystery stories too. It was like, you know, trying to approach great works, um, you know, like for instance, looking at Hamlet and um, not that anyone will ever be Shakespeare, but trying to understand how Shakespeare did it. The reaction isn't, or at least my reaction isn't, oh, I could do that. I could write the sequel to Hamlet. It's, oh my God, that's unbelievable. The way he created this character here who's immortal and will always be immortal and will always be a mystery. Right. So, right. you know, you know, I guess it became more daunting, not less daunting. So, you know, after writing this book, I'm farther away from writing a detective story than I was when I began. Does okay. that make sense? Um, do you know what you're going to write next? I don't. Um, I'm, I'm, batting around some ideas. Um, I definitely want it to be something really different, a different form um, than, than kind of this, this structure of uh, academic scientific study followed by anecdote, followed by study, kind of the usual mix. I wanted to, I want to play with form, um, not, not a detective story, but um, I've got a couple subjects I'm, I'm thinking about and having fun with, but nothing definitive yet. Okay, great. Um, now you mentioned uh, the new Leanne Moriarty, but what else are you, what else are you reading that you might recommend to, to listeners? Oh, um, uh, any good mysteries, um, for example? <laughs> oh, um, you know, I, I've, I've been reading, actually, I've gone back to Conan Doyle with my daughter. I've got a 10 year old and one of the joys of, of, uh, you know, having a literate child is going back to Harry Potter. Um, yeah. So, you know, we've done that now. She's, she's read it seven times. I've done it twice with her. And I think Harry Potter, much to my surprise, I, I've come to see it as one of those infinite games. It's one of those texts one can return to again and again. And, um, and the more you read it, the less you understand Snape. Um, right, right. And the more interesting he becomes. You know, when when those books came out, my son was in second grade, and I read them to him. I read, oh, you know, I read each of. And then when the last one came out, he was a senior in high school, and he still let me read it to him. And I always thought that oh, was my a goodness. great act of oh, generosity wow. on his part. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm so jealous to kind of. I remember being in college at the time and and watching people line up in New York City uh, yeah. at midnight for the last one. Um, and, and just being like, wow, go literature. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry. You were talking but, about Snape. But, go, go, go ahead. With oh, Snape. No, no, but I, I mean, that, that has been one of the joys is getting to just reread them in parallel with her and talk about it and, and, you know, how the books continue to surprise how, how they are these, they are these infinite games, uh, which is a, which is a hell of an achievement for, 
a YA series. Um, but anyway, she's she's now doing Conan Doyle. So we've been doing Conan Doyle together in concert with the um, BBC Sherlock, uh, which you know may be a little inappropriate for a ten and a half year old. But um, but but it's been really fun to read this. We read the stories first and then watch the BBC adaptation. Oh, great! And um, and and kind of discuss the formal differences. But um, no, really, just finishing. After the new Moriarty, then I've got the new friends in lined up, which I'm very excited about. Hopefully it will overlap with Thanksgiving break. Um, I was like reading like kind of a messy family novel during uh, a messy family holiday. It yeah. feels fitting. Um, and that's and that's really all I got uh, next, you know, on the nightstand right now. Okay, wonderful. Um, let's see. You have an interesting take in the book on spoilers. You write, the best art is unspoilable, an infinite game, that's what you were just talking about, that doesn't require an ignorant audience. It's a basic fact of entertainment that we seem to have forgotten. But that's not true for all stories. Do you think, I mean, it's got to be a pretty special story for that to be true. Do you Do you agree? Um I- it's a really interesting question. So, so I do carve out an exception in the book and, and say there, there are, you know, I think Pulp Fiction can be spoiled. Um, I think even a Law and Order SVU episode can be spoiled. I think there are works where the pleasure does depend on the sudden shocking twist. Um, and, you know, Alfred Hitchcock called those puzzles. Um, and I think you can, you, you can ruin a pulpy puzzle with a spoiler. That said, I think our culture is so awash in spoiler alerts and anxiety about having a show ruined. Um, and I think what the scientific research suggests, um, and this is research done by Nick Christenfeld at UCSD uh, and colleagues, is that if you give people a good work of art, a lot of good literature, but even just a good Agatha Christie mystery, that people will actually enjoy it more if it's spoiled at the start. And then they did these spoilers in multiple ways. Sometimes they just told people how it was gonna end. Sometimes they gave away the ending in the beginning of the text as if it was there, you know, written by Agatha Christie herself. Um, so, so, so they corrected for lots of different forms. And what they found is that regardless of how it was done across all these different literary genres, that people actually enjoyed the spoiled work more than the unspoiled work. Mm. It's a very counterintuitive finding. It's a finding that, when I first heard about it, said, well, there goes my mystery thesis, uh, completely disproved it, um, right? Because if the pleasure is the mystery, then why the hell do we enjoy a spoiled work more? But then I talked to Nick Christenfeld, and he, he, had, he had some really interesting things to say about potential explanations. For him, it really is an affirmation of the deeper mysteries. So for most of this, for most genre fiction, we know how it's going to end anyways, Mm -hmm. right? We know the good guys are going to win and the bad guys are going to be vanquished. We know the Avengers aren't going to be defeated. Um, We know uh, Ethan Hunt in the Mission Impossible series is not going to die 50 minutes in. Um, So the suspense really isn't the ending. The suspense is the process. The suspense is the journey. The suspense is the characters. The chase. (laughs) It's the chase, exactly. And what Christenfeld argues is that when it's spoiled, when the ending itself is spoiled, that frees up our mental bandwidth to pay more attention to all the other twists and turns and surprises and layers along the way. So it's not that it takes away the mystery. It just lets us appreciate the even more interesting mysteries. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. Um, I just have one last question for you, um, Jonah. And, And I always like to end by asking for some advice for writers. And in your case, I thought I would ask about advice for writers who want to use the workings of a mystery in their art, even if they're not writing 
mysteries specifically. Um, what might you suggest to them as, as advice? Um, it's, it's such a good question. It's something I wrestled with a lot while writing this book. And I think it's to not be afraid of leaving some information out, um, to not be afraid of creating that, what scientists call the epistemic gap, um, really, really activating their curiosity. So I think there is this, there is this desire to do lots of handholding and tell people what's going to come and how it's going to end. So they're never lost. But I think part of the pleasure in reading is to be a little lost sometimes, to not know how it's going to turn out. And that's true if you're Edgar Allan Poe or Agatha Christie or Michael Connolly. But it's also true, I think, if you're writing a nonfiction book, to, mm-hmm. to not be afraid of leaving people a little confused. Um, you know, it's something that's scary as a writer because there's nothing more terrifying than losing a reader on page 42 or... Yeah age 111. Um, but, but I think we have to, you know, we have to be able to trust people that, that if our subject is interesting and if we tell the story, right, that they're there to learn. And part of learning is, is reckoning with what you don't know. Excellent. Okay, great. Um, Thanks for that. Um, I want to mention again, the name of the of the book is Mystery, A Seduction, A Strategy, A Solution um, by my guest, Jonah Lehrer, and published by Simon and Schuster. Um, Jonah, thanks very much for talking to me today. Thank you so much. That was so fun. Thank you. From the Media Factory in the south end of Burlington, Vermont, this is 99.3 FM, WBTV LP, Burlington, streaming online at 99.3 WBTV.org. This is Write the Book, the show for writers and curious readers. That was an interview with Jonah Lehrer about his new book, Mystery, A Seduction, A Strategy, A Solution, published in August by Avid Reader Press. This week's Write the Book prompt was suggested by my guest, Jonah Lehrer, Read a detective story and look for the false clues planted in the first five pages, or in Act One, depending on the work. In a Poe story or a Conan Doyle, there are so many missed leads, says Jonah, and you forget about them once you know the ending. But to create the surprise, a lot of work needs to be done. There are many mechanics involved in setting up that surprising twist. And studying the stories or novels of others can help us learn about those mechanics. Good luck with your work in the coming week, and tune in next week for another prompt or suggestion. As always, I would love your feedback about Write the Book. Let me know um, if you have certain authors you'd like me to interview, or if you have any events to announce. If you like the show, please rate it, uh, like it, and talk about it with your friends and on social media. Be sure to um, tell your friends about the podcast site, writethebook.podbean.com. Uh, You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, lots of other podcast sites. You can visit Write the Book on Twitter and on Facebook for updates, and you can also access the podcast at my own website, shelaughswithoutus.com. I'm Shayla Connor Shapiro, and you've been listening to Write the Book. This is 99.3 FM, WBTV LP Burlington, Vermont, streaming online at 99.3 WBTV.org. Stay well and have a great week. (laughs) 